is a fundamental problem in philosophy and mathematics. You can sit in an isolated room, in an armchair, and prove theorems about triangles, like the angle sum of a triangle, the Pythagorean theorem. When you do this, you have a feeling that you have established these results with absolute certainty. You feel that they must be true because of how compelling your proof is. And you feel that you have established this by thought alone, by purely intellectual means. Mathematics is unique in this respect. In other subjects, thinking is a powerful tool, but is always supplemented by observation and experience. If you spent your whole life isolated in a locked room, you would not be able to say anything about the laws of astronomy or the anatomy of the digestive system, because without observation, with only pure thought, it is impossible to even get started in those fields. But you could figure out everything about triangles. If one day you were released from your prison where you had been sitting for decades, you could go out to measure actual triangles and you would find that indeed their angle sum is always two right angles, the Pythagorean theorem always holds for right angle triangles, and so on, just as you had predicted by pure thought. This is quite a mystery. It shows that there are two sides of mathematics that are difficult to reconcile. On the one hand, the internal mental conviction that mathematics establishes absolute truths purely by reasoning. On the other hand, there's the external physical fact that mathematics works in the real world. What is the bridge between these two worlds? It's as if there's this natural harmony between our minds and the outer world. What is the cause of this mysterious harmony? These two poles can be called rationalism and empiricism. Rationalism takes mathematics to be fundamentally a matter of pure thought. This fits well with the sense we have when we're doing mathematics, when reading Euclid, that we are establishing absolute truth by sheer reasoning. However, it doesn't explain why mathematics works so well in the physical world. We have encountered some rationalists already, Plato, Descartes. We saw how Descartes solved the problem. Mathematics is pure thought, and it works in the physical world because the Creator put mathematical ideas in our minds. As the Bible says, God created man in his image. That is to say, God created the world based on mathematical ideas and then created humans and sort of pre-programmed uh, our minds with the same kind of ideas that he had used to create the world itself. So no wonder that there is this harmony between the mental and the physical worlds. Uh, they both stem from the same source, the creator. He used the same principles when designing the physical universe as he did when designing us and our minds in his image. So Descartes said basically this quite explicitly as we recall. Plato pretty much hints at the same idea. God is a mathematician. This is a central belief in Platonism. Plato and Descartes need God for the same reason. Because they're rationalists, they need this hypothesis to explain why mathematics works so well in the real world, in the physical world. We have encountered already some empiricists as well. Aristotle, Francis Bacon. They think knowledge ultimately comes from the world around us, from the senses, from experience. From that point of view, it is no mystery that mathematics works on physical triangles. Mathematics stems from physical experience to begin with, so of course it conforms with physical experience, with, with the things we encounter in the world around us. 
the challenge for empiricists is instead to explain the mental experience of doing mathematics, our feeling that it brings absolute truth by pure thought in a way that no other subject does. From the empiricist point of view, this feeling is basically a mistake, a delusion. We think we're doing pure thought. Actually, mathematical thought is generalized experience. We think we can sit in a closed room in this armchair and figure out things about the outside world that we have never even seen. But it only feels that way. It's not actually that way, according to the empiricists. We have seen and touched many lines and triangles and squares our entire life since the year we were born. We have internalized this experience. It has become second nature to us. Basic truths of geometry, such as Euclid's axioms, they may feel like core intuitions that are much more pure and absolute and undoubtable than things we know from experience. But that feeling is a delusion, according to the empiricists. Our minds, our feelings, have imperfect self-awareness. Just as we are not aware through introspection how our digestive system works, so we are not conscious of the psychological origins of our mathematical intuitions. I think we can agree that rationalism and empiricism both face big challenges. The challenge for rationalism is to explain why mathematics applies to the physical world if it is fundamentally a mental, purely intellectual preoccupation. Traditional rationalism had an answer that was very compelling at the time. Explanation in terms of God, the creator. Nowadays, we may want an atheistic answer. Then, rationalism is back to square one. It faces the original problem all over again without any solution in sight. Empiricism doesn't have that problem, but it has other ones. If mathematics comes from experience, how can it seem so absolute, so undoubtable? How can an exact science come from inexact sensory expressions? If mathematics is based on experience like everything else, why does mathematics seem to be such a different kind of knowledge in so many respects? Those are challenges for the empiricist to answer. So any way you slice it, whether you're a rationalist or empiricist, you face fundamental problems and quite difficult to reconcile everything we think we know about mathematics with one view or the other. This stuff is not just some philosophy conundrum. It really matters how you answer these questions because it shapes the kind of science that you do. Here's an example. Consider Kepler, 17th century astronomer. He was another rationalist. As Kepler says, nature loves mathematical relationships in everything. They are also loved by the intellect of man who is an image of the creator. So there you have Kepler's words are almost word for word how I described the rationalist position just moments ago. Kepler, too, needs it for just the same reason that Plato and Descartes had to appeal to the Creator to make sense of their philosophy of mathematics. Kepler felt that the world was designed with the in intent that we humans should study the universe mathematically. Here's how he puts it. Whenever I consider in my thoughts the beautiful order of the universe, then it is as though I had read a divine text written onto the world itself, saying, Man, stretch thy reason hither, so that thou mayst comprehend these things. In fact, scientific facts support this view, in Kepler's opinion. For example, as he says, Sun and Moon have the same apparent sizes, so that the eclipses, one of the spectacles arranged by the Creator for instructing, observing creatures in the orbital relations of the Sun and the Moon, can occur. 
is indeed a very striking fact that the moon is exactly the right size to block out the sun at the moment of a solar eclipse. From the point of view of modern science, it is a remarkable coincidence. It's pure chance that the moon is exactly that right size. So you can understand why the explanation in terms of purpose was more compelling in, in Kepler's time. Witnessing a solar eclipse, it is a spiritual experience. It all seems so perfect. Much too perfect to chalk it up to just chance. It's very disappointing that modern science offers nothing more than this non-explanation of such an emotionally compelling spectacle. And in fact, not just modern science for that matter. These kinds of views were around already in Kepler's time. Atomism is a classical worldview advocated by many Greek thinkers that is indeed very happy to attribute almost everything, including eclipses, to chance and randomness. According to Kepler's teacher, Melancton, such views wage war against human nature, which was clearly founded to understand divine things. So here we have, again, that double challenge to empiricism. If mathematics is just one type of knowledge among many that we pick up from experience, then, first of all, why does the universe show so many signs of being mathematically designed? Like the thing with the eclipses, but there are countless other examples one could use to make this point. Empiricism has no answer to this. It thinks that's all just a bunch of coincidences, and we are fooling ourselves by looking for purpose and design that isn't there. And secondly, if empiricism is right, and mathematics is just experiential knowledge like everything else, then why does mathematical reasoning feel so uniquely compelling and convincing? As Melanchthon says, mathematics is as natural to a human being as swimming to a fish or singing to a nightingale. Just as animals are born with these instincts, so our minds are innately predisposed to do mathematics. Empiricism does not explain why that is the case, or why that seems to be the case at least. So, it's understandable that Kepler was a convinced rationalist instead. And this conviction shaped his scientific work. Astronomers are priests of the book of nature, as Kepler said. So he was always looking for meaning and purpose and design. For example, the telescope was a new invention in Kepler's time. It was a big moment when the moons of Jupiter were discovered. So Kepler immediately looked for the purpose behind the existence of these moons. He quickly concluded that Jupiter must be inhabited. Why else would Jupiter have moons? As Kepler says, for whose sake the question arises if there are no people on Jupiter to behold this wonderfully varied display with their own eyes. We deduce with the highest degree of probability that Jupiter is inhabited, says Kepler. Let's look at a second example, another one of Kepler's attempts at uncovering divine design. That is his theory of planetary distances. According to Kepler, the creator has chosen the number and position of the planets in the solar system according to a very beautiful and pleasing mathematical design, namely a plan based on the five regular polyhedra. Euclid discussed the regular polyhedra at length in the elements. There are precisely five regular polyhedra, as Euclid indeed proves in the very last theorem of the elements, the culmination of his work. Kepler figured that God was as fascinated by these shapes as Euclid had been. So when God asked himself how many planets should be in the solar system and how far from the sun should he put them, God figured that the most mathematically pleasing way would be to choose six planets and to have the spaces between them 
chosen in such a way that uh, the five regular polyhedra would fit precisely between them like a nesting doll. Kepler's theory, in fact, fit the data very well. You could calculate the planetary distances from astronomical measurements, and you can calculate the size proportions of the regular polyhedra from Euclid's elements, from the pure mathematical theory. You could put these things side by side in two columns. They come out remarkably close. So in this respect, Kepler is quite uses a methodology that is similar to modern science. You know, you're just testing a hypothesis by means of comparing uh, the numerical data of, of your hypothesis with reality, and it turns out to match up well. Well, it's a standard way of confirming a hypothesis to this day, and Kepler uses this scientific methodology quite consistently with modern standards, you might say. And it's interesting that Kepler here explains things that modern science doesn't explain at all. Why are there six planets? Why are the planets positioned at those particular distances from the sun? Why not want Mars a little closer, Jupiter a little further away, whatever? And why does the moon fit precisely on top of the sun during an eclipse? So Kepler explained all of these things. If you accept the basic outlook, that it makes sense to think of the creator of the universe as a geometer, then Kepler's explanations are very good. This is Kepler, you know, the best mathematical astronomer of his age. It's not some whimsical uh, religious musings. Very serious science, very good science as well, one might argue. Meanwhile, modern science doesn't explain any of these things. There is no explanation, there is no why, according to modern science. The answer to these questions is all just chance. The solar system was formed by a bunch of random rocks getting caught in a gravitational field. Whatever positions they took up, it's pure, purely random. It's easy for us to judge Kepler. Shouldn't science actually, though, explain more things as it develops, not fewer? You would think that science should take things that are not explained and explain them, instead of taking things that are already explained and then attributing that to coincidence instead. And yet, that is precisely what happened when Kepler's theories were abandoned in favor of agnostic modern science. In any case, uh, this Kepler stuff is interesting for all kinds of reasons, but for our purposes, what I wanted to show was it, it, that it matters whether you're a rationalist or an empiricist. Rationalism, as we saw, almost requires the hypothesis that God was a geometry, just as Plato and Descartes and Kepler all said. That assumption has made implications for how you practice mathematical science. It suggests looking for a deliberate design put into the world by a mind that's essentially like our mind, as far as mathematics is concerned. So that's one way in which the rationalism-empiricism divide strongly shaped scientific practice in the early 17th century. But that was not the end of it. Here's another example. The contrasting ways in which Descartes and Newton approached cubic curves. Cubic curves are the next step beyond the conic sections. Conic sections are curves of degree 2. They were studied in great depth by the Greeks. So cubic curves are called cubic because they have degree 3. So they are more complicated cousins of the conic sections. In the 17th century, this was a natural direction to take geometry, to understand the curves of degree 3 and, and higher in the same depth that the, the Greeks had already mastered the conic sections of degree 2. So, for instance, the conic sections come in three classes, the ellipse, parabola, and hyperbola. Can you find an analogous way of classifying cubic curves if there are three kinds of conics, how many kinds of cubics are there? There are going to be more classes, because the cubics are more complicated, 
maybe with the right principle of taxonomy, one can impose order among their variety in a way that is as useful as the division into ellipse, parabola, and parabola is in the theory of conics. Newton did precisely this. He gave a very detailed and advanced technical study in which he classified cubic curves in several different ways. He divided cubic curves into species, as he says. That was his own choice of words, species, and it is a vivid word choice, isn't it? Taxonomizing curves into species makes Newton sound like a pioneering explorer scientist forging into unknown jungles, studying all the strange creatures that you find you know, in the depths of the rainforest or something. When you find a new exotic insect, you put it under a microscope, you study all its properties. How many legs does it have? How many eggs does it lay? And, and so on. It's the same when studying curves. How many crossing points? How many inflection points? And so on. It's the zoology of mathematics to study curves. This metaphor fits very well with the epistemological ideals of empiricism. You learn by studying the great diversity of things out there, into the jungle. That is the call of empiricism. That is how you learn things, by immersing yourself in the unknown. The best geologist is the one who has seen the most rocks. That's another slogan of empiricism. Experience is the source of knowledge, in other words. If you want to understand rocks, you need to look at a whole lot of rocks. If you want to understand cubic curves, you need to look at a whole lot of cubic curves, first of all. Once you have built up a store of experience, then maybe you will be able to see some patterns starting to emerge and you can begin the process of systematizing or taxonomizing these uh, uh, rocks. So empiricism is all about diving in at the deep end, figuring it out as you go. It corresponds to reading Euclid backwards. You start with the complicated stuff, the Pythagorean theorem and such things. Those kinds of things are the exotic beasts that you encounter in the jungle, in the wild. Gradually, you seek to bring order into the chaos by finding general principles that account for the phenomena that you observe. That's empiricism. It's completely backwards according to rationalism. That's not how you learn things. You can't start with observations, with, with phenomena. Perception is unreliable according to rationalism. Aimless exploration, unguided by the intellect, is bound to be a waste of time, leading nowhere. The way to knowledge is thinking, to meditate, as people used to say. You have heard of Descartes' Meditations, that's even the title of one of his works. The source of knowledge is meditation, that is to say, deep thought, where you basically close yourself off from the world, sitting in an armchair in a closed room. That's where you make progress in understanding, not running around in the jungle, so Newton's way to study cubic curves was the empiricist way. Get your machete out and start chopping your way through the thick of it. And eventually you become familiar with all these wild things that you encounter and you start to see what kinds of species there are, how they are related and so on. Descartes was the opposite of this. He was a rationalist. Descartes studied cubic curves too, but through meditation. His big book is the La Geometrie, 1637. He doesn't study cubic specifically, he studies all algebraic curves, so curves of any degree, not just degree 3 like the, the cubics. Already that, in fact, is a typical rationalist characteristic. Rationalism starts from the general. Empiricism starts from the specific. Rationalists withdraw into meditation because they do not trust individual observations. 
thought is more reliable. If you sit back in an armchair and introspect about what is knowable, then you are bound to come up with very general and abstract truths. I think, therefore I am. The whole is greater than the part. Two lines cannot enclose a space. Stuff like that. Gradually, you have to work your way from there, step by step, to any specific fact that you need to explain. Just as Euclid gradually works his way up to more and more complex and detailed material by starting with very general principles that ultimately entail all the rest. So the rationalist is interested in all-encompassing abstract laws or axioms. It is important to the rationalist that all truths can, in principle, be deduced from these axioms. But it's less important to actually do this, to actually deduce everything. The rationalist is more interested in the fundamental axioms or, or laws because those are the source of the certainty of knowledge. The specifics derived from these principles merely inherit their certainty from the certainty of the foundational axioms themselves. So the very first principles of the entire field is where you need to focus your attention if you are a great rationalist philosopher. That's indeed exactly what Descartes does in his book, La Geometrie. Even the title fits this point of view very well. The Geometry. It's a very total, definitive account of geometry as a whole, just as the rationalist epistemological ideal demands. And this is further confirmed in the very first sentence of the text. All the problems of geometry, <laughs> this is how Descartes opens his book, all the problems of geometry, it's very, it starts with extreme generality, just as rationalism suggests that one should. He wants to find the principles that can be used to solve all the problems of geometry. In principle, Descartes doesn't care so much about the details. He's very keen to explain why his principles are sufficient to solve all the problems of geometry, but he has very little patience for actually solving any of those problems. This is reflected in the very last sentence of the book. There Descartes writes, I hope that posterity will judge me kindly, not only as to what I have explained, but also as to what I have intentionally omitted, so as to leave to others the pleasure of discovery. This is a bit dishonest, obviously. Descartes did not omit the details merely out of kindness to the reader, as he claims. His focus on the general and his lack of interest in the specific is a consequence of his rationalist outlook. Newton is the opposite. He loves the details. He loves getting stuck in with some obscure technical problem. In fact, his long treatise on cubic curves is full of technical details, but he gives very little attention to explaining any general conclusions. It's hard to see the forest for the trees. And that's precisely good empiricism, of course. Rationalism thinks you can trust specific results because they are derived from reliable general principles. The certainty of knowledge resides in the axioms, the general principles. That's where you need to focus your attention to secure the rigor and reliability of reasoning. And that's what Descartes does, as other rationalists do as well. Empiricism looks at it the other way around. It is the details, the little things, that are most knowable. Knowledge starts from directly observed phenomena with all their specificity. That's the root of reliability and certainty. Abstract principles are trustworthy only insofar as they are inferred from a large body of facts. It's the same in physics. Newton, the empiricist, to him the starting points are specific facts. 
the orbital time of Jupiter, the speed of Saturn, specific observable things. You have to start there and then infer general laws like the law of gravity by showing that it fits a long list of observed facts. It's the specific facts that give credibility to the general law, not so to Descartes. The introspective, meditative, rationalist way of doing physics is to figure out first what properties of moving bodies are most undoubtable. What are the things that are like Euclid's axioms but for mechanics? Descartes did physics exactly this way. In his view, the most undoubtable core principles of physics are the laws of collisions of two bodies. If one body bumps into another, what happens? Well, if one is twice as heavy, but they have the same speed, then so-and-so happens. And if one is twice as heavy, but the other is twice as fast, then so-and-so happens, and so on. These are the kinds of principles that Descartes thought one could establish through pure thought and meditation. Descartes saw this as analogous to Euclid's geometry. Euclid's axioms are about lines and circles, the basic building blocks of all geometrical figures. More complex figures are built up from there by combinations of lines and circles, or ruler and compass, if you like. In the same way, in physics, complex phenomena can be regarded as ultimately generated by the simple root phenomena of collisions of two bodies. Indeed, uh, modern science kind of agrees about that part, doesn't it? If you exhale on a cold day, your breath forms a cloud that moves in complex ways. It seems to float or flow Really, though, it's just lots and lots of tiny molecules crashing into each other millions of times. And that's what gives rise to this flowing pattern that you see on a larger scale. So, simple, generative principles can be enough to account for all kinds of things beyond their immediate reach through elaborate, repeated composition. So, this, you have these microscopic phenomena of little water molecules and air molecules crashing and then that gives rise to, if you zoom out to this cloud of breath that sort of a, seems to have a, I don't know, some kind of almost like a life of its own, or a, it seems like a homogeneous behavior of that cloud. But the, the global phenomena is just a repercussion of the, what happens at the microscopic level. That's how vapor clouds work and, and it's also how geometrical figures work isn't it lines and circles give birth to all geometry including very complicated shapes that aren't just round or straight it's uh, uh, just as little molecules bumping into each other can generate clouds so also lines and circles combining intersecting can generate all kinds of complex figures like the polyhedra that kepler mentioned and many other interesting things in fact Lines and circles are not enough to generate all geometry, though, even though they get very far. The line and circle cannot generate cubic curves, for instance. Well, Descartes is very interested in this issue. Indeed, in his book, La Geometrie, he supplements the ruler and the compass with another basic generative principle for drawing curves, a kind of uh, linkage principle. You can build a sort of machine that consists of multiple rulers and pegs interlinked in certain ways so as you push one part of the machine other parts move in specific way because of how all the parts are interconnected uh, an ordinary compass is a sort of uh, two rulers nailed together in the same way you can make more elaborate devices composed of more rulers 
So that gives rise to uh, new compasses, as Descartes calls them, and these are sufficient to encompass all the problems of geometry, according to Descartes. In a way, it might seem contradictory that it was the rationalists like Descartes and Leibniz who were so concerned with the making of geometrical figures, with concrete devices. Shouldn't a proper rationalist hate physical instruments, like Plato did, for instance? A typical rationalist. However, there is in fact no contradiction between the rationalism of Descartes and Leibniz and their attention to physical instruments for generating curves. Descartes cared about geometrical instruments for theoretical reasons. As I just emphasized, constructions in geometry go naturally with the general rationalist idea of the mind generating all knowledge from within itself. It's a form of self-reliance. The mind doesn't need anything from the outside world. We spoke before about how constructions are connected to the epistemological foundations of geometry, maker's knowledge. Constructions are the most knowable thing, the most secure form of geometrical knowledge, protected against many threats of paradoxes and contradictions. So that's another way in which constructions go well with rationalism, which is, of course, very much concerned with what are the most undoubtedly knowable things. So these instruments, like the ruler and the compass and the generalizations of, of the ruler and compass that Descartes came up with, are theoretical, not practical. There's a funny anecdote that sums this up in the Brief Lives by Aubrey. It's a late 17th century collection of biographical stories. Maybe it's not super reliable exactly, but uh, this story that I will quote about Descartes it could very well be true. Here's what uh, this biographer Aubrey says. Descartes was so learned that all learned men made visits to him, and many of them would desire him to show them his instruments. He would draw out a little drawer under his table and show them a pair of compasses with one of the legs broken, and then for his ruler he used a sheet of paper folded double. So it's a quite amusing little story, and it fits what I said about the constructions being theoretical. So we see that this idea of drawing curves with instruments in, in geometry is analogous to the idea of explaining all of physics in terms of collisions of little bodies. They are both simple intuitable principles that generate the entire world of phenomena. From a rationalist point of view, you need such principles. You start in the simple and pure world of meditation, and you need to reason your way toward the complicated and messy outside world. So you need a bridge that goes from the simple to the complex. Contact mechanics is such a bridge in physics. Ruler and compass is such a bridge in geometry. But this is only necessary if you're a rationalist. If you insist on starting with pure intuition and pure thought, then indeed you need this kind of bridge to the phenomena, to the outside world. But if you're an empiricist, you take the outside world, the jungle, for granted, as given, as a starting point. Then... You don't need to explain how it can be generated by repeated composition of simple principles. Indeed, Newton rejects both contact mechanics and geometrical constructions at the same time for precisely this reason. The fact that these two things are intimately related is not lost on Newton. 
This is why he starts his big masterpiece on physics by talking about the construction of line and circle in geometry. It's a very weird way to start a physics treatise to modernize, but it makes perfect sense if we keep in mind the background of Descartes and rationalism and everything I just outlined. I'm referring to Newton's Principia, his big work, masterpiece of 1687. Descartes was long dead by then, but Descartes' ideas about the foundations of physics were as relevant as ever. Leibniz was a contemporary of Newton, was a rationalist like Descartes. Like Descartes, Leibniz attached great importance to contact mechanics in physics and constructions in geometry. So when Newton's Principia came out, Leibniz was very upset that Newton had abandoned the principle of contact mechanics, which was so essential to the entire rationalist worldview. Let me quote Leibniz on this point. Here's what he says. A body is never moved naturally except by another body that touches and pushes it. Any other kind of operation on bodies is either miraculous or imaginary. Newtonian gravity is precisely one such other operation, something that cannot be explained in terms of particles bumping into one another. This is why Leibniz condemns very fiercely the notion of gravity as a foundational principle in physics. Let me quote Leibniz. I maintain that the attraction of bodies is a miraculous thing, since it cannot be explained by the nature of bodies. That is to say, Newton's law of gravity cannot be explained or arrived at from a rationalist point of view. Newton, in fact, agreed. If anything, he makes the same point in even stronger terms than Leibniz himself. Here's what Newton says. It is inconceivable that inanimate brute matter should, without the mediation of something else, which is not material, operate upon and affect another matter without mutual contact, as it must be if gravitation be essential and inherent in it. That gravity should be innate, inherent and essential to matter, so that one body may act upon another at a distance through a vacuum without the mediation of anything else, is to me so great an absurdity that I believe no man who has in philosophical matters a competent faculty of thinking can ever fall into it. So certainly very strong words there from Newton. We can understand why. He wants to discard the rationalist outlook entirely. He's not interested in winning broad support for his theory by trying to argue that it sort of fits with rationalism somehow. He could have given that a shot. He clashed with many influential people, Descartes, Huygens, Leibniz. He could have tried to go a diplomatic route, and he could have tried to come up with reasons for why his way of doing science was compatible with their rationalist commitments, but he chose not to. This is why he comes on so strongly in these quotes about how gravity is rationally inconceivable and so on. In this way, Newton moves the conflict into the arena of rationalism versus empiricism generally, instead of arguing about the interpretation of meaning of gravity specifically. With the cause of gravity I meddle not, says Newton, since I have so little fancy to things of this nature. So what Newton wants to justify is not gravity specifically, but the empiricist way of doing science generally, in which you don't care about these kinds of questions at all. Questions such as how to give a rationalistic account of gravity, or explaining how a meditating mind in an armchair could arrive at the necessity of the law of universal gravitation. Those questions should simply be ignored, says Newton, which makes sense from an empiricist point of view, but is sheer madness from a rationalist point of view.
So Newton bites the bullet on the cause of gravity. He says, yeah, I know my physics completely clashes with the core beliefs and methodology of rationalism, but it doesn't matter because rationalism is wrong anyway. So as I said, the role of contact mechanics in physics is analogous to the role of constructions in geometry. Newton knows this. This is why, to justify his physics, he starts by talking about how to interpret the role of constructions in geometry. Here's what he says right at the beginning of the Principia. The description of right lines and circles upon which geometry is founded belongs to mechanics. Geometry does not teach us to draw these lines, but requires them to be drawn. For it requires that the learner should first be taught to describe these lines accurately before he enters upon geometry. Then it shows how by these operations problems may be solved. To describe right lines and circles are problems, but not geometrical problems. The solutions of these problems is required from mechanics, and by geometry, the use of them when so solved is shown. And it is the glory of geometry that from these few principles fetched from without, it is able to produce so many things. Therefore, geometry is founded in mathematical practice. All of this, a quote from the preface to Newton's Principia. So that is a clearly an empiricist account of geometry, not only because it obviously grounds geometry in the physical world, in physical practice and experience, but also because it takes away the idea that the axioms need to be justified by being intuitive and undoubtable. That was important to the rationalists, but Newton does away with that. This is how Newton can justify that he meddled not with the cause of gravity. Geometry, likewise, doesn't meddle with the construction of curves. Geometry merely postulates the description. In fact, geometry, according to Newton, postulates these things, how to draw lines in circle, precisely because it knows not how to teach the mode of affection, just as physics doesn't know how to teach the cause of gravity. So, Newton has twisted Euclid into support for his physics. This is why the preface to the Principia is about constructions in geometry, the ruler and compass of Euclid. If geometry doesn't really know how to generate these curves, but only takes them for granted and goes from there, then physics can do the same with gravity. You don't have to explain where gravity comes from, how, gra how there can be such a thing as gravity, if uh, in geometry you never needed to explain how there can be such a thing as line and circle, those are axioms, those are postulates, they are just given. You don't need to justify them. In the same way in physics, gravity just is. It is not the problem of physics to, to explain why or how. It is just, just take it for granted and see what you can deduce from it. Just as geometry takes postulates as given and worries about what follows from them rather than how to justify them. So, Newton and Leibniz clashed along such lines. And not only them, one could argue as well that there's a geographical element to this divide. Empiricism is to some extent a British movement, more generally, not only Newton, but also Francis Bacon, John Locke, Wallace, just to name a few people who we have already encountered before. Meanwhile, Leibniz's rationalistic tendencies in his science and his mathematics were shared by his leading colleagues in continental Europe, like Descartes and Christian Huygens. So, by way of summary, let me read here a passage by Newton on his scientific method, and I will insert comments 
on how what he says, his own words, fits exactly with what we have just discussed. So the passage that I have in mind from Newton, it begins like this. As in mathematics, so in natural philosophy. This is already very interesting. I've only read the, the first part of the sentence, but already Newton is announcing that his scientific method is based on the method of mathematics, method of Euclid, basically. So, all right, let's see then. What is this methodological principle that is common to both mathematics and science? Newton's sentence continues. The investigation of difficult things by the method of analysis ought ever to precede the method of composition. So, what does that mean? Analysis, it corresponds to reading Euclid backwards. To analyze is to break down into smaller pieces. Composition corresponds to reading Euclid forwards. To compose is to put simpler pieces together and to form more complex results. So clearly Newton is advocating the backwards approach, starting with the difficult things, breaking them down into simpler or first principles. Here's how Newton continues. Analysis consists in making experiments and observations and in drawing general conclusions from them by induction. By this way of analysis, we may proceed from compounds to ingredients and from motions to the forces producing them and in general from effects to their cause, and from particular causes to more general ones, till the argument end in the most general. General indeed, you know that is a key word here. From observations, that is to say from specific facts, one infers more general underlying principles. Empiricism goes from the specific to the general. Rationalism, of course, does the exact opposite, it goes the other way around, from general to specific. It's also nice that Newton mentions that analysis goes from compounds to ingredients. This is precisely the chemistry or cooking metaphor that I used before when we were discussing uh, reading Euclid backwards. So, well, not my idea, it's uh, already Newton had uh, preceded me with that metaphor. So here's how Newton continues. This is the method of analysis that we, the, the part was just described. And next, the synthesis consists in assuming the causes discovered and established as principles, and by those established causes, explaining the phenomena proceeding from them and proving the explanations. That's what the synthesis consists in. That is to say, reading Euclid forwards. That is, of course, also essential. The method of analysis that the empiricist uses it does not dispense with this direction of Euclid. It merely reveals that a preliminary stage is necessary to understand the meaning of the forward direction, the synthesis direction. And it is through the preliminary analysis, the backward direction of reasoning, that one arrives at the principles, not by direct intuition, as the rationalist would have it. And then after that, the forward direction, the composition or the synthesis, proves that these principles really work. That is to say that they are sufficient to prove everything. You need to prove the explanations, as, as Newton says. So, And that part is indeed the same for both the rationalist and the empiricist. The key difference is how they account for where the principles or axioms came from. So there you go. Those are Newton's own words. They correspond very closely to the story that I have told. Of course, Newton and Leibniz and all these guys were acutely aware of all of this stuff. In this way, they were much more philosophically conscious and, than most scientists of later ages. And clearly, it shaped their science very profoundly, as I've shown by several examples. So, in conclusion, that's all the more reason then to keep pursuing 
these questions and indeed we will. Thank you.